Well, good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have the privilege of looking at the Gospel of John again as we are in our second week of our study here in this book. So pray with me as we begin. Lord, we praise you for your grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. Lord, not one of us deserves to be here this morning. There is nothing that we have done to earn your favor. There's nothing that we have done to cause ourselves to be born again. Lord, you sustain us simply by your grace. Lord, we ask that as we look at your word, you would speak to us through it, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in it, and that you would satisfy us with yourself through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning, and if you are a Christian, which I'm sure most of you here are Christians, then at some point you were not a Christian. At some point you heard someone witness to the truth of the gospel and you believed it for the first time. You may not remember it. You may have had that happen when you were so little that your memory doesn't even go back that far. But there was a time when someone, whether it was a parent, whether it was a pastor, whether it was a friend at school, whether it was a colleague, someone witnessed to you. They testified. They spoke to you the gospel. And you received it. You believed it. You trusted it for the first time. You received Jesus as your Savior. You received him as the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the question is, how did that moment take place? What was going on in your heart that allowed for you to receive the gospel? It was not because you were born into a certain family. Faith in the gospel does not run through genetics. It does not run into our DNA. There are many, many examples of people who are born to faithful, godly, Jesus-loving Christian parents, and they grow up and they reject the gospel. So why did you believe the gospel? It wasn't because you were smarter than other people around you, that somehow you had the intelligence to put the pieces together in a way that somebody else didn't. There are unbelievers, non-Christians, who are far smarter than you or me in this room. And yet, they don't believe the gospel. So why do you believe the gospel? It was not merely because you had the willpower, the courage to do what other people lack, and that you embraced the gospel bravely and courageously in the face of all opposition. How did you become a Christian? How were you able to receive Jesus when others weren't? John 1 tells us how. And this is a theme that we'll actually see as we work through the Gospel of John. We'll see it in John 1. We'll see it in John 3. We'll see it in John 6. We'll see it in John 8. We'll see it in John 10. And those are just the first 10 chapters of the book. Over and over again, what we'll see is that the reason you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, is because of God's grace. 
It's God's sovereign grace. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then the way in which you will become a Christian is by God's sovereign grace. In John 1, 6-13, which James just read for us, we see that those who believe in the light are born of God. Those who believe in the light are born of God. And we're going to see three points this morning to show this. First, we're going to see the witness to the light. Then we're going to see the rejection of his own. And third, we're going to see the children of God. And we're just going to work through verse by verse, looking from John 1 at these three points. So first, let's look at our first point, the witness to the light. The first five verses in John 1, which Pastor John preached on last week, are absolutely amazing. They take us back to the beginning, to the beginning of the beginning, to a time when the world was not, when anything that you have ever seen or experienced with your eyes, tasted with your mouth, touched with your hands, did not exist, was not there. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before anything that you have ever experienced through your senses came to pass, God was there. And God is the Word, and God is the Father. We meet the Son of God, who, what we just read in the Nicene Creed, how that puts it, He is the only begotten Son of God the one begotten from the Father before all the ages, the light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being. We meet the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 1 through 5, amazing. Eternity passed. But then in verse 6, all of a sudden, John takes us to a moment. We go from eternity past to a real historical moment with a real historical person that is as real as October 1st, 2022 is. And we need a man there. We meet a man named John. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. We go from eternity past to a moment in time when a man is born named John. This man is sent from God. There's a number of things that we see about John from this passage. What's different about the Gospel of John compared to like the Gospel of Luke, for example, is in the Gospel of John, he just shows up. The Gospel of Luke shows us his backstory, but there's still a number of things we can learn from John's Gospel about him. The first I just said, John is sent from God. His ministry fits within a divine purpose. It didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't coincidental. John was one who is sent, and he's sent with a purpose. In John's gospel, like I said, he just shows up on the scene, but we see a little bit more detail in Luke's gospel. 
And listen to how John the Baptist, how his father spoke about him when he was moved by the Holy Spirit before John was born. He says this, you child, talking about John, you child will be called prophet of the Most High. John is a prophet. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John is going before the Lord. To give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. John is coming. He is sent from God. He is preceding the Lord himself. Malachi 3 in the Old Testament draws upon this and it predicts the coming of a messenger who will come to prepare the way of the Lord. That God-sent man, that God-sent messenger, is John. The second thing we see about John is that he is a witness to the light. We heard that even on the screen behind me when the the father of John, Zechariah, says what he's going to do, he's going to give light. But John's ministry is to bear witness to the light. The third thing we see is that he's not the light himself. So John is a witness, a pointer to, he's not the source. We don't go to John as the light. We go to John to find the light. He's a pointer to the light. He testifies to the light. Now this is going to be really helpful when we actually meet the light. When the light takes on a name, because we can look and we can see, who are you pointing to, John? Who are you bearing witness to? So far, we've heard of the word. We've heard that the word was the light. Who is this person? We see that in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. We have a name. So far, we've had the light. Now we have a name. He saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's pointing. John is bearing witness. John is testifying to who the light is. He said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is probably the most famous person in all the first century at the time that he shows up. On the screen behind me, I realized looking right there, I can only see it backwards, but I noticed you guys weren't connecting with what I was reading. The screen behind me talks about how all Judea and Jerusalem were going out to John. John is a celebrity. He is famous. He is known by kings. He's known by the most religious people of his day. He's known by the commoners. All these people are going out to him. But what's important is that John's not the hero of the story. As the most famous person, probably, or at least the most famous preacher of his day, he doesn't say, look at me, y'all. I have come. He is preparing the way for the one who will come. He's going to say later on, when people start leaving him, I am happy with that. I want to decrease because it's not about me. It's about the light He is the way to life. 
He is the source of our salvation. I want to decrease so that he can increase. Go to him. Look at him. Run to him. John's not the hero. John is a pointer. In the UAE, there are many, many people who are happy to say that Jesus, this Jesus who John points to in verse 29, they're happy to say that Jesus is a prophet. But what they miss is that Jesus is categorically different from prophets. Jesus is a prophet, but he is so much more than a prophet. John 1 will not let us stop with Jesus as a prophet. He is not merely another prophet in the same line as John the Baptist. He is the one who John the Baptist anticipates, who John the Baptist is pointing to. He is the fulfillment of what John the Baptist is trying to get people to see. He is the prophet, but he is also the Son of God. He is the Word who was with God in the beginning. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the other prophets, including John, bear witness about Jesus. He is the fulfillment. So I'd encourage you, if you're, if you're ever in a conversation with a friend who would say, I believe that Jesus is a prophet, but they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if they'll let you, I would take them to John 1. And I would say, let's look at how prophets talk about Jesus. Does he seem like he is merely one like the rest? Or is he someone whom they all point to? Because he is the source of light himself. Take him to John 1 and let them see for themselves. John pointed to Jesus because Jesus is the light who gives life to all men. This light came into the world. But a surprising thing happened when he did. And that is, the world did not receive him. The world did not know him. And this leads to our next point, the rejection of his own. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. If you've read the first few verses of John, which we have, this is not what you would expect. This is an amazing person that we're talking about. This is a person who, through whom everything was made, and there is not anything here made that was not made through him. Everything comes from him. And yet, the world did not know him. Those who were created by him do not acknowledge him. When it says he came to his own, he's talking about Israel. The people, God's old covenant people, Israel, did not receive him as their king. Verses 10 and 11, you can see, it moves from general to specific. So he came to the world. That's talking about all humanity. All humanity, Jesus came, and they did not know him. But then in verse 11, it says the people of Israel did not receive him. Now, if we're familiar with the Bible, we can maybe, maybe understand why the pagan nations wouldn't recognize who Jesus was, right? All throughout the Old Testament, we have false worship. We have 
the Canaanites worshiping Baal. We have the uh, Babylonians worshiping Marduk. We have the Greeks worshiping Zeus. Those, those other countries, the Gentiles, those other nations, they had their own gods. I guess I can understand why they wouldn't recognize or know Jesus as the one who created the world, but it makes no sense why the people of Israel wouldn't have if it was simply intellectual understanding, if it was simply putting the pieces together in your brain. The people of Israel had been waiting for the Messiah for years and years and years. They had the law. They had the prophets, and they still did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Which should lead us to ask, why do people reject Jesus? Why do people not receive Jesus? It can't be merely not having enough revelation that they don't know enough. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The Jews had the law. The Jews had the prophets. Why did they reject Jesus? There are many reasons behind this, but one key reason why people don't come to the light is because they don't want to be exposed for what they truly are. The reason they don't come to Jesus is because Jesus shows them things about themselves that they don't like. And he shows other people things about themselves that they don't like. If you've ever watched kind of things that get news anchors ready for the news, like kind of the behind the scenes sort of stuff, you'll see that these news anchors will sit in a makeup room and they'll just be caked with makeup, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of makeup goes on their faces. If you see them outside of that, some of you, I, I was in uh, some plays in high school. I wasn't good at them, but I was on stage. And when you see someone off stage, they look weird. They look very weird because they have this thick makeup on their faces, right? Why do they do that? Because the bright studio lights expose every imperfection on our faces. It washes out the color of our faces. It reveals all the flaws of our faces. Those lights are great for recording, and so they shine brightly on them. They look nice on TV. But the problem is, those people by themselves don't look nice when you shine a light on them. Some of us have had this experience, right? We, we see a picture. This happens to me all the time, especially with my hair. I see a picture, and I look, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. My hair's thinning. I have way less hair than I thought I did. I like standing in dark light. When I have the flash turned on, it's like, uh-uh. I don't like that one bit. Others of you are getting ready in the morning, and you flip on. In the UAE especially, I feel like all the bathroom lights are, like, incredibly harsh, Right? They're not like the nice, soft, warm glow. You flip on the harsh lights, you turn it on, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Right? The problem's not with the light. The problem's with you. That's what you really look like. And it doesn't matter how much makeup you put on, it doesn't change that. 
When we look in the bright light, our physical imperfections are exposed. And just as our physical imperfections are exposed with bright light, when the light of Jesus shines on us, it exposes our spiritual imperfections. We see how wicked we truly are. If you are trying to come across as perfect, if you're trying to come across as superior to other people, even if you're trying to come across as more righteous than other people, as more godly, then you will not like the light because the light will expose all your imperfections. It will reveal how weak, foolish, and unrighteous you truly are compared to Christ. But the tragedy is that it's only by coming to the light, only by acknowledging your imperfection, your ugliness, that you can be saved. It's only when you see yourself for who, it truly, who you truly are that you can confess your sins, that you can turn from your sins and be saved in Jesus. It feels terrible to realize how bad you are. Some of you have had those experiences, either before you were a Christian or even after you are a Christian, where you're talking with somebody and all of a sudden you realize, I am not who I thought I was. And you feel a pit in your stomach. Because you feel shame. You thought that you were better than you truly were. If you take that and you hide, you will never be freed from it. But if you bring that to the light, then you will be saved. Because in the light, there's exposure of sin, but there's also forgiveness from sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how he's the light of the world, is by removing sin from us. So if you're hiding in the shadows this morning, I beg you, come to the light. Bring it out into the open. Come to Jesus. And one final word before moving on. Some of you in this room, I'm sure, some of you know what it's like to be rejected by your own people because you have come to the light. You have received Jesus for who he truly is. And you have been rejected by others for it. If that's you, Jesus knows this rejection. If anyone should have been accepted, it would be Jesus. He is goodness perfected. He is life itself. And yet he was rejected by his own. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Some of you may have been rejected by your own family. Some of you may have been slandered by your friends or your community. Some of you may have missed out on promotions at work because you're not willing to do things that don't line up with what Jesus says. Jesus will never reject you. You can come to the light who knows what it's like to be rejected, and you can find acceptance in Christ. He knows what it's like. He can sympathize with you, and he does something more. He doesn't only sympathize. He gives you a family. He brings you in. If your family has rejected you, Jesus gives you a family. Jesus provides you with a community. Jesus provides you with adoption. He will bring you into his own family and will never turn it back. And this leads to our final point that we see, the children of God. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, 
and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 11 makes it very clear that there is no single people group on this planet that is naturally closer to God, that is naturally closer to Jesus. Even those who were ethnically related, who could track bloodlines back to Jesus, were no closer to him spiritually than the person born on the other side of the world. It doesn't matter whether you are American. It doesn't matter whether you are a Filipino. It doesn't matter whether you are an Emirati. You are no closer to God than any other person on this planet. In your natural state, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But just as our ethnicity by itself cannot bring us to God by itself, our ethnicity does not keep us from God either. You may think that you were born to the wrong tribe or the wrong people group. That doesn't keep you from God. You are no closer, but you are also no further off. And the grace of God breaks into ethnicity so that we can be saved. Listen to this. We just read it. Those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, have the right to become children of God. What does it mean to receive Jesus? What does it mean when John says, those who receive him who believe in his name? What it means is it means treasuring him and trusting in him for all that he truly is and all that he truly does. To believe in Jesus means you believe in the real Jesus and you love him. You may say that you believe that Jesus is a prophet, but if you do not believe that Jesus is the son of God, which he truly is, then you don't believe in Jesus. You may believe that Jesus is the Lord, but if you do not believe that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then you do not believe in Jesus. You may believe that Jesus is God, but if you do not love him, you do not believe in Jesus. That is the faith of demons. Demons believe that Jesus is God, and they hate him. To believe in Jesus means to treasure him and trust him for all that he really is, not all that we'd like him to be. Treasuring and trusting in him for all that he truly is and all that he truly is. You believe that he is God's son who took on flesh. You believe that he lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law. You believe that he died as a substitute, the Lamb of God who through his death takes away the sins of the world, and you love and worship him for it. That's what faith is. And look at what this faith is connected with, the right to become a children of God. Do you see that in verse 12? This is absolutely amazing. We're going to see next week how the word became flesh. What we see is that the Son of God became a man in order to make men and women children of God. The Son of God took on flesh so that you could be adopted as a child of God. This is the doctrine called adoption. Those who believe in Jesus are adopted into God's family. They're welcomed into God's family. 
It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you believe in Jesus, you are an heir with Christ. You have an inheritance with him. In our English Bible study, which meets on Monday nights, this last week we looked at this passage. We've been trying to look at the passage for the upcoming sermon. And as we were looking, some of our members were sharing about the way that the the practice of adoption is misunderstood in their own cultures. According to these members, what can happen is that adoption can often lead to being seen as a second-class citizen, like you're not really a full member of the family. Right? People may see you in your community, and it becomes a point that they'll mock you. They'll say, well, you're adopted. You're not a real child. Or what happens is even inside the family, you might be cut out of the will. Right? So you may be taken care of until you reach a certain age, but then you don't get a part of the inheritance because there's a clear line between biological sons and daughters and adopted sons of God. If that's your view of adoption, though, that's your culture's practice of adoption, that will miss out on the glory of what the Bible teaches about adoption. The Bible teaches that Jesus gave the right to those who believe in his name to become children of God. What that means is that he gives them all the privileges, all the benefits that come with being a child of God. You are an heir with Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You will rule with Christ. Your inheritance is Jesus' inheritance. Jesus' life becomes your life. Jesus' reward becomes your reward. By being a child of God, you are an heir with Jesus. You don't fly. Some of us have, all of us have flown to the UAE, and, and there's no better place of showing class marks than an airplane because you get to walk by and you see the comfy first-class seats. Now they're like basically apartments where it's nicer than my house. You have like a recliner there. You have a big screen TV. You walk by and you, you see it. You look and then you go all the way to the very back of the plane and you have your tiny little seat, right? Sometimes we can think that that's what it is like in the kingdom of God. There's the pastors. They fly first class. We don't. They fly first class. There's maybe the volunteers who they're kind of in economy plus, right? And then there's normal Christians who are way back in economy. They get to sniff a peanut as it goes by, but they don't get to taste it. That's not the way it is with God's kingdom. There are no class distinctions in the kingdom of God. The whole plane is Christ's, and the whole plane is first class because of Christ. And no sooner will God reject Jesus than he will reject you if you are in Christ. God will not turn his back on his own son. And if you believe in Jesus, then God will not turn his back on you. Let's come back to the question that we started the sermon with. How is it that you were able to receive Jesus? How is it that that privilege became yours? Verse 13 gives the answer. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You were able to believe, and by believing received the right of sonship, because you were born of God. You were born of God to believe in the light. John is not merely saying in verse 13 that these children were not biological. That's not the way that language works. He is stacking superlative upon superlative. He is stacking negative upon negative to show there's something going on here. They are not coming from blood, not coming from the will of the flesh, not coming from the will of man. Where are they coming from? God. It's all the grace of God. God's grace, it's really important that you understand, God's grace preceded your faith. God's grace was not in response to your faith. That would make your faith something you do to earn grace, which makes grace not grace. Your faith itself is a gift of God not the will of man. This is, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith. Our salvation really is through faith. It is through faith that we receive the right to sonship. But this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If your adoption was ultimately rooted, ultimately rooted in your faith, then you could say, I made the right decision, and I get the privileges. You made the wrong decision, you don't get the privileges. But because your faith is a gift, there's nothing to boast about. Your faith comes about because you are born of God. You have been given the new birth, which we'll see in John 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus. God gave you a new heart, and all the glory goes to God for his sovereign grace. This doctrine, I recognize, this can lead to a number of theological and philosophical challenges of trying to figure out how it all works. The Bible teaches you need to believe, and you are responsible to believe. And the Bible teaches that your faith is a gift, and it is a gift from God. We'll work through, as we go through John's gospel, some of the challenges that come with this. But I want to close by asking a question in light of this, and then sharing a response to this. So the question is, rather than getting objections and beginning to think through of, well, what about this, or what about this, or what about this? My question is, do you marvel at the grace of God that you have experienced? Are you absolutely in awe of the fact that someone who, with everything in their being, would reject God, who has a sinful nature that has rebelled against God, who has spurned God in every aspect of their lives, who to this day has areas of their heart that have not fully turned to God but are holding on to sin? 
Do you marvel that God would give grace and make you a child of his own? That he would receive you into his family. That the sovereign grace of God would cause you to be born again. You may not have all the answers for how this works, but what you can do is you can worship. You can marvel. You can pray that God would help you understand. But as you're praying, you should say, Lord, thank you for doing this. When I was dead in my trespasses and sins, you made me alive with Christ. By grace, I have been saved. As we were wrapping up our Bible study on Monday, Lammy, one of our, one of our members, I didn't tell her I was going to say this, she responded in a way that I think shows how we should respond to this message. She shared that prior to believing in Jesus, she was walking completely away from Jesus. That if people were to look at her from a human perspective, they would say, there's, there's no way that someone like me could be saved. But here she is, a child of God, someone who has been following Jesus for a number of years. I don't say how many years you've been following, Lammy, but a number of years. Saved. Born into God's family. And she shared how this happened and wrapped it up with, I think this is almost a direct quote. If, if it's not, you can ask Lammy for more questions afterwards. But she shared this, and I think this is the way that we should respond to this truth. I know that it is only the grace of God for why I believed in Jesus. I would not have believed on my own. It is only by his grace. Praise God for grace. You may not know how everything is going on in your heart, but you do know this. Apart from God's grace, you would not have believed in Jesus. And the response is worship. Praise God for his glorious grace. Praise God indeed. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for how you lavish it upon us. And we give you the glory for it. Lord, we ask that as we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us to worship in our eating and our drinking by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.